What is always good startup advice is what's the initial service that you roll out to customers? Just make that work first really, really well before expanding to other areas. We listen to a degree, but we build a broader product than maybe the conventional wisdom would have suggested. Starting a company, that's easy. Selling your company, that's a whole different story. And in the big exit show by Peak, we lift the curtain of secrecy of selling ambitious scale-ups by talking to successful founders who have been in this roller coaster. My name is Remy Gieling. And I'm Johan van Mil. And in this episode, we are in Helsinki to talk to Thomas Toivonen. About 10 years ago, Thomas decided to build a, a radically better banking solution from scratch. His company, Holvi, does banking, invoicing and bookkeeping for solo entrepreneurs, free Freelancers and small businesses in Finland, Germany, and other European markets. In 2016, he sold his company to the Spanish multinational BBVA, only to buy it back in early 2021. We'll talk to him about starting, scaling, selling, and reacquiring the company. Thanks so much for having us, uh, Thomas. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, uh, the one thing I uh, found on your LinkedIn profile is that you started your career way back in Syria. How did you end up there? No, yeah, I mean, um, so I've been an entrepreneur from um, kind of the beginning of my working career. Um, so started first company right after high school. Then my only employment that hasn't been with with like a company that I founded is, is that I work with a Finland-based security and networking consultancy in, in 2005, 2006, um, where we build a new countrywide backbone for, for Syria. Um, so the, the government wanted to, to really bring internet to the country. Um, and then once that was built, um, someone was needed to, to help them run the network. Um, and I ended up in that, that very, very interesting job for, for a year and a bit, um, living in Damascus and, um, helping to run the, the backbone network in Syria. So very interesting times. How was it living there in Damascus? Very, very nice. Um, of course, that was some years before the, the Arab Spring. And of course the situation is very, very different, yeah. different now. So, um, at that time, um, very nice culture, very nice country. So it was was really amazing to do then also on on the weekends to see a lot, a lot of Syria and the neighboring countries, um, Lebanon, Beirut, of course, is a, oh. is an amazing city. So nice, good times, good year. Hey Thomas, what what is the the heroic story behind Hilvi? Well, the heroic story is is the background is that we all were and are um, entrepreneurs, and we really didn't have a a banking service that would help us run our businesses, and um, and we saw the need in the market, um, a service that we would use. We also had a long background in nonprofit activities, in in also event organizing. Um, I was for for a, a very long period the the treasurer treasurer of of something called the Alternative Party. They were organizing the largest digital media festival in the Nordics. So, and we had built a. a a lot of software to to help kind of run these event activities, the finances of an event, invoicing sponsors, um, selling tickets, all of that. So basically, we had a little bit of of our own own software that we'd built for for different different use cases. Um, we had good software to to run kind of nonprofit activities, but then our in our business lives, running small businesses, we didn't really have anything comparable that would help mm. us, us us run the business. And around that time, kind of the the euro and the SEPA payment region was already set up. So we, we looked at the market that, that, hey, here would be something that we could build on, not just in Finland, but on a, on a pan-European basis. And also at that time, PSD1, the first payment service directive. Um, I mean, now there is a lot of talk about open banking and PSD2, but PSD1 um, brought to the market a, a, a new way to be regulated so that you could offer a service that provides the, the functionalities of a traditional bank, but um, a little bit lighter regulation, easier to get started, less capital requirements as a payment institution. So it was this software, changes in regulation, changes in the payments market, um, that we really looked at the at the scene and um, and, and decided that, that, hey, since there is no banking service for small businesses and that there is these structural changes in the market. Yeah. So, hey, we can actually build this ourselves. Um, so we were really kind of the, the first customers of the service, Indeed. the service ourselves. So very easy to 
to do kind of get to a good product market fit because it was really like, okay, does it work for us to run businesses? Yeah. If it does, it works for other small businesses as well. So you solved your own problem and uh, used the, the changing legislation, also the changing technology in the market exactly. at that time, right? That's, that's interesting. Hey, and and that's, that's a heroic story. What's the real story behind Holvi? Because as we all know, as entrepreneurs, it's different, right, to run a company because what, what's the real story for you? <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, I mean, starting in 2011 and kind of the first year of Holovy from 2011 to, to 2015, really being a pioneer in, in, in fintech, um, being the, the, the first business-to-business neobank on, on the market. It's always great and interesting to be a pioneer. From a business perspective, you probably don't want to want to do that. I mean, a good example, um, Google was not the first search engine. Um, there was a, a number of search engines before, mm-hmm. and the we don't hear that much about no, those no. those pre Google um, search engines. <laughs> the so, so they were maybe a little bit a little bit early. So we were also very early to to the market. And um, these days, if you get started in in a lot of um, kind of payments or, or, or neo-banking, you have banking as a service platforms available. Um, so you yeah. don't have to build everything from, from the ground up. So we had to really build everything from the ground up, whether it was technology regulations, payments and banking partnerships. So, so it definitely wasn't, wasn't easy, but definitely, definitely, definitely interesting. And, and, um, and like with all startups, you always kind of have this kind of right in front of your nose, like an, an existential problem that, okay, here we've got this thing that is is going to kill the company. And then you work to, to solve that problem. You get it solved only to realize that, okay, that was the just the visible part of the iceberg that, that then there's the next problem that, that then becomes <laughs> existential. And, and you always think that, okay, if I solve this one, then it's smooth sailing, but it never is. There's always the next problem. Um, And that's just as as part of an entrepreneurial journey, you just have to get comfortable that that is like never solved. You always have the next problem to to solve. And if if that's not your cup of tea, then then, well, maybe you should do the the, uh, entrepreneurship (laughs) business. So, so our listeners are all over Europe and beyond. Uh, so they don't maybe all have a Holvi account yep. yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So can you tell us what makes Holvi different from other neobanks like N26, Revolut or Bank? Sure. Um, and our uh, like the first thing that makes us different is that our focus is fully on on serving small businesses. So we don't serve consumers. Uh, so the sweet spot for the, the Holvi services really kind of from freelancers to to companies up to 50 persons so kind of mid-sized smes what makes us also quite different from other players is that it's not just the bank account and the cards that you get but as a, as a small business owner you get the the end-to-end service so you get all the facilities to to collect income so you get a full invoicing solution including electronic invoicing you get a full online store included in the in the mix um, so you can in 15 minutes you can be online and, and selling selling physical or virtual products or services and we bring you all the payment methods so you set up your online store you're up and running selling products no shopify needed no stripe needed it's all integrated into the whole online banking uh, interface so really um end-to-end facilities to to collect the income but then also uh, a full set of services to manage expenses and then of course we tie the income and the expenses with a comprehensive cash flow dashboard so that the entrepreneur really sees at all points in time like how their business is doing um and then as a as a new service that that we now have for for a cohort of pilot customers, but rolling out in the coming year at a larger scale is that that we also now have credit services in the mix, starting out with a, a credit card offering in, in Germany and Finland initially for, for freelancers, but you really get the, the full service. And we also give you credit uh, for those events where either you want to to grow your business with, with credit or you have a, a cash flow crunch and you need a little bit of help to, to tidy over that. And uh, to play the devil's advocate for a second, why are you so avid on not taking on uh, like consumers? Because in my experience, for example, I, I, I bank with bank for a long time and they do business accounts and personal accounts. And for me personally, it's very convenient that uh, I have it all in one app. But uh, there must be a very good reason why you decided we don't do consumers. 
No, I mean, it's, it, it all comes down to, to, to focus. Um, so, of course, if you look at freelancer customers and consumers, there is a bit of an overlap. Um, so it's not like that clear line, but we really want to, to focus on, on the business use cases. Um, if you're a consumer, I mean, in some cases, yes, but you don't usually have the requirement to, to invoice other folks on a, on a, on a monthly basis. I mean, you receive your salary on, on your account and that's, that's your income. So, so the needs are quite, quite different. And, and we, we really want to keep the service focused on business customers. And, and I mean, we see N26 or is Revolut, um, a lot of these players that started out with full consumer focus, bring a little bit of the, the business focus into play. But then at the end of the day, their offering is often kind of a little bit tailored to business customers, which isn't then fully purpose built for business customers. And that's, that's what we are all, all about. You know, derived, it's a derived product, right? No, exactly. Also what I can recognize on that end. Hey, how, how hard was it uh, for you to get the regulation sorted out? So, and especially also those days. Yeah, I mean, it was a challenge. Um, and, and of course it was kind of very early into PSD one. So um, when payment institutions as a, as a regulatory category was was very very new, mm-hmm. um, so we were one of the the first ones here in, in in Finland. So it was hard to to find the kind of legal assistance um, because no one had really done this before. So what we ended up doing was was really kind of going to the source, um, kind of starting to to build from first principles. So just go read the EU directives read the Finnish laws, um, of course, very close to the directives, but but really kind of understanding the space super, super deeply um, ourselves so that we could then explain our business in the right regulatory terms. And that's something that, I mean, it's, it's gotten easier these days with, with like banking as a service platforms yep. where uh, a new company doesn't necessarily need to understand that deeply the the regulatory background, but I would really recommend any fintech entrepreneur to to just kind of do their own research in a sense, read the laws, understand that that from the ground up. If if you just rely on on legal advice, mm-hmm. it's it's very costly <laughs> to, to, to begin with. <laughs> yeah. um, but but then then you're not able to to kind of challenge any of the the orthodoxies of what can be done and what cannot be done. You you really need to understand it it, it yourself and, and laws and regulations, maybe it isn't the most exciting reading, <laughs> but it is human readable. Yeah. You, you don't need to be a lawyer to read read um, laws and regulations and every fintech entrepreneur should do that. Yeah. yeah. So what were some of the responses from the people around you when you told them all the way back in, in 2011 you were maybe starting a bank, which sounds kind of wacky. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that wasn't so such a big thing. So um, kind of banking goes in the, in the family. Um, so my, my father had a, a very long career in, in banking, including being in the founding team of a Finnish bank. So it wasn't, I mean, I, I'd seen the process kind of um, around me. So it, it, it wasn't really that, okay, starting a bank is something weird. Um, it just seemed quite natural, really. And did he take some lessons from him? Because he'd done it before, of course, in a whole different industry, maybe no, a different I'm, time. Absolutely, absolutely, and um, his advice and and what what is always good good startup advice is that like okay focus 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 you're like what's the initial service that you roll out to customers just make that work first really really well before expanding to to other areas all of that we listen to a degree but we build a broader product than than maybe the conventional wisdom would, would have suggested. But I, th- I think that was also the right thing to, to do um, from, from the get-go because we really, we didn't want to solve for the small business customer that, okay, this is just your ticket sales solution or your invoicing solution. We really wanted to bring the whole set of services that a small business requires into one so that the business owner can really focus on on their business. And our earliest customers were very much from kind of the, the health and wellness segment. Mm-hmm. And, and for these folks, we really wanted to help them focus on, on what they do best. So if you are a independent yoga teacher, 
that's what you know what to to do. You're you're not in the business of business management. No. And we really felt that we need to give a comprehensive solution yeah. um, to okay. them. I can imagine also given the completeness of your offering that it's for companies which already have an existing offer offering for invoicing, etc. It's it's hard to sell your product, right? So I, I assume that a lot of your customers, especially in the early days, were starting yoga schools, starting massage salons, etc. Right? Is it? Yeah, I mean there was of course a, a lot of customers that were just starting up, but also there was um, and an, an a larger set of customers was really people who had been in business for for a while, but maybe their business was growing or they otherwise wanted to really kind of professionalize their business. So maybe they they had started in business and then they just Googled like um, invoice template in Excel. Mm -hmm. And then they were just really doing things super, super manually, creating invoices in Excel, sending those manually, um, then tracking whether they've, they've got the payments or not. And our offering really resonated for them that, okay, for one, it's super, super much faster to, to create your invoices. We deliver it automatically. We track it for you, whether it's paid or not. If it's not paid, reminders are sent. So we really take a lot of the load off the the entrepreneur um, like okay I want to automate this I want to make this better I want to focus on the essential so Thomas how did you fund the first period of, of Holvi yeah I mean the the, the first five years um, kind of the early years and very really early years in in fintech as well um, so we were funded um, first by uh, angel investors in in Finland and, and in other Nordic countries um, and many of the angel investors uh, were from the the financial sector so they were very helpful kind of as mentors as well as well as making making connections then in 2014 um, we got um, the Austrian venture fund Speed Invest as as our um, seed investor, um, and they of course were one of the the earlier funds with a, a fintech focus. So really, were a, a good asset to to have on the on the table. And um, and actually, our first first overseas market or outside Finland was was actually Austria yeah. through the the connections through of the Speed, Speed Invest. Invest so they they really helped us land on 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 the new market and to to realize that. Mm, banking is done quite differently in different European countries and, and we have a lot of localization ahead of us. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. What was your revenue model back then? Because for a long time, a big part of the product was available for free. So how did you get people to get them to, to pay the salaries? <laughs> yeah, I mean, actually in the, in the earliest years, um, we had no free services. Everything was, was paid. That was then only a little bit later when we um, started to offer a kind of a free package. In the earliest years, it, it was really, we charged for payments, payments processed. So you did get the current account um, and all the other facilities for free, but every payment incoming or outgoing, um, we had a, a fee, whether it was uh, e-commerce payments or just bank transfers, we charged on a, on a per payment basis. The growth phase. Thomas, when did you notice that you were really starting to get traction with the company? Can you take us back to that moment? Well, well, I mean, um, so so for us, of course, um, kind of the early years, what really worked well for us was getting these beachhead customers in certain specific segments. I already mentioned that kind of the early customer traction came from kind of health and wellness uh, segment. And what really worked for us was in, in each segment to, to get kind of one or two like really visible anchor customers. So, so for example, we had um, the leading salsa dance instructor in, in Finland mm, as yeah. a customer um, and this just having this one customer allowed us to build quite a large customer base around that particular area. And, and what, what was kind of maybe the, the key learning there was that if you are a dance instructor, you're probably not an expert in, in banking. But if you provide for this person a, a service that helps them succeed in their their business makes it easier for them to run run their dance studio um i mean these folks speak to other people in the same vertical like dance instructors speak with other dance instructors and if you have someone who is respected in the field 
then other people in the same vertical, they will listen because you have the professional credibility, even if you're not kind of a banking yeah, expert. Indeed. And how, how did you get these lighthouse customers on board in the different segments, right? Because I can fully imagine that it really helps to get new clients in the same uh, sector on board. But how did you get these first clients on board? I mean, it was it was really um, going to all kinds of events. Well, maybe sometimes we we forget what the the world was like uh, pre COVID. Um, you actually went to, <laughs> to to see people in in person, and and just um, one of the the, the co founders, Christopher. Um, he was really our evangelist, and he was basically on the road all the time, all around Finland. Um, so, so it was really community Spreading building. The word. Exactly. And did you also do like affiliate marketing then to incentivize these people to, to bring in new clients? No, not really. I mean, it, it, it was quite non-digital and, and this is like 2011, 12, 13. So really, really traditional grassroots building the community type of customer acquisition. Yeah. Hey, what, when did the competition came up? Well, I mean, competition um, only started kind of relatively late. I mean, the early years up to like 2015, 2016, we were more or less the only player in town. So some of the, the European B2B neobanking competitors, like 15, 16, 17 was only when these folks start to to kind of come to the scene and i mean of course one one big enabler was that the the banking as a service platform started to to appear then so it became easier to to build something where you focus on the ux and let someone else handle the payment processing then regulation etc et now fintech is everywhere but um it's it's often and we forget like how recent it in a sense it is mm-hmm. um some of our earliest investors, when they invested in Finland, um, their colleagues joked that, okay, so now you're investing in FinTech, as in <laughs> technology from Finland, not, yeah. not financial technology. So, and how, and how did you start expanding beyond FinTech in Finland? How did you start uh, expanding through other countries? Yeah, so we got um, in, in 2014, um, around the same time as, as Speed Invest came on as an, as an investor, we upgraded our license from a registered PSP to a full payment institution, which then allowed us to, to use the so-called passporting process that we could passport our services all across the European economic area, um, which we promptly did. And then we, we started first in Austria and actually Austria and Ireland, then later um, went to, to Germany, um, which is our largest market now by far, and as well as um, open services in, in some, some other European markets um, where we are present to, to today as, as well. Yeah, apart from, from Speed Invest is of course located in Austria, but for me, it's an, as an investor, it's not a very logical market to start, right? Given the size of the market and et cetera. What was for you the reason apart from Speed Invest to start there? Well, I mean, part, part of the, I mean, Speed Invest was one important factor and, and the help that they could bring us on the ground. So we kind of, in collaboration with them, set up our, our first kind of outside Helsinki office in, in Vienna. Um, but also um, we wanted to start with a, a smaller market and, and kind of try the, the same customer acquisition models that we'd done in Finland, kind of replicate replicate that model of really being on the ground, going to meet potential customers, be where the customers are. And we thought that it's easier to do in a in a smaller market mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. than going to, to Germany directly. Then we also had, had the idea that, okay, we kind of um, learn about the Dach region, starting first in, in, in Austria, then, then expand to Germany. Of course, there we were a little bit naive that um, kind of the lessons from, from Austria to a degree, yes, they translated to Germany, but to a large extent, no. Um, so maybe it would have been better to, to go to, to Germany from, from the beginning, but, yeah. um, but it was still a, a good, good learning as a kind of like the, the first non-home market Indeed. and starting like a little bit smaller market. Push your toe in the in the water and see what happens, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. The company also moved to the UK for a while, but I think you, at one point, you decided to, to, to not focus on that market anymore. What were some of the reasons behind that? 
Yeah, I mean, UK, of course, is a, a super interesting, interesting market and a market where a, a large segment of the economy, there's a lot of small businesses, a lot of um, sole traders. So, so structurally very attractive and of course a big, big market along with the other big European markets. So we, we did roll out our services in, in the UK, build it to um, actually quite nice cohort of early customers back in kind of summer 2020. Um, so a year and a half ago, we kind of had this decision point to make that now we have this early traction. We've, we've done the, the learnings in the UK market. Now would be the time to, to really invest in the market, grow in the UK. But that was unfortunately also the time of highest level of COVID uncertainty. Mm-hmm. No one really knew how things are going to develop. And we knew that that we then need to, like if we went kind of all in in the UK, we'd need to get separate UK license. Um, so in, in that sense, it would have become a much more complex market than, than just kind of um, any EU or EA market. Um, so at that point, along with our parent company, we, we decided that, okay, now is not the right time to, to invest in the UK. And, and then we kind of looked at the option, should we keep it in the UK at kind of this subscale level and then maybe expand from that, but decided that no, it's, it's, it's better to, to kind of do a clean break with the, the, the market and, and, and focus on the, the EU markets. The exits and reacquiring phase. So in 2016, you decided to sell the company. Let's first take us back there. Well, what, what was the reason for you to decide to, to, to sell at one point? No, absolutely. I mean, so um, as I mentioned, the the kind of 2011, 2015 period, the early years of Holovy, um, very early to to fintech, and also kind of very early to to kind of fintech financing, and also a lot of the supporting infrastructure um, was kind of in, in in early stages. So so we kind of really felt that okay to build this company to to its maximum potential is probably going to take a little bit longer than than expected it's probably going to cost a little bit more than expected and it was like a good question that is this with all of the uncertainty in a very nascent industry like is this a a good vc case so we had had reasonably good investment offers but then we also had two very interesting Kind of strategic offers on on the on the table, um, and then in in collaboration with our investors, we decided to take one of those uh, strategic options. So then, in early 2016, we joined the Spanish banking group BBVA as a fully owned subsidiary. So they purchased the the company as a team. We we stayed on and very much continued to to run the business as a, a separate entity. I mean, we had our own licenses, our own technology, our own kind of partnerships for the payment processing. So in, in a sense, we continue to operate um, very much independently, of course, with very, very strong um, kind of board and and, um, and from a compliance side, oversight from, from the parent company, and of course, a, a strong kind of strategic um, alignment mm-hmm. between us and the parent company and and at BBVA, we were part of um, a unit called New Digital Businesses, mm-hmm. where there was us and, for example, Simple, a um, consumer neobank pioneer from the US, yeah. was one of the, the other portfolio companies um, along with, with one of with the us. first, right? One of the first banks. They, they, they yeah. were definitely definitely a, a, a pioneer on the on the consumer side, and they joined BBVA twelve months or so yeah, earlier be, than than, than right. us. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we knew from from the past, Josh and Shamir, um, the founders of Simple. So, so that was also a, a very good reference for us. And we talked talked with um, the the Simple founders before um, deciding to to join BBVA. Um, so, so that is always good to get the inside story yeah, as, as, as well, yeah. because you you never know with with large corporates that how they work with smaller companies. Indeed, reference calling, uh, reference checking is very valid on that moment, it, right? It, That's it, a, it, that that hey, definitely, definitely is. Hey, and how did you get to this moment? Because you mentioned, right, you had a few options from VCs, you had a few yep. strategics on the table. 
my own experience on that field is that it's pretty hard, right? Because on the one hand, you're talking to VCs, you have a story about growth, and then you have also a story to strategics, and it's more about integrating your company and working together with strategic. How did you, at that time, manage that process also? And one, from a professional level, so who did you hire to help you with that, but also on a personal level? No, um, so so we of course had had good advisors for the the process. A UK corporate finance advisory a company called Strata Partners. I mean, because in in a way you were running two processes, two processes simultaneously, right? yeah. and 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 there was a lot kind of the same goals with the processes because even with the strategics, it was not about really integrating the company but keeping it running as a, as a very autonomous unit pioneering new markets, um, pioneering new customer segments, new ways to deliver financial services. So from that sense, it was not two wholly separate processes, but of course it, it was kind of doing two things at, yeah. at once. And, and it was really, really helpful to to have um, advisors for, for that, that process as well. But I can imagine also for you as founder, it's more or less two different stories, right? Because one indeed it's VC money, so very aggressive growth. And the other more strategic is more indeed other markets, but of course turning to profitability in a certain moment, right? Working more together with the companies. How was it for you on a personal level to have these two different stories on the on the table? Yeah, for us as the the founding and, and, and management team, the strategic option was, I mean, we really felt that um, We've gotten far as the pioneers in the in this space, but we've we've seen enough to to realize that that yes, this is probably going to take longer than we expect. This is probably going to cost more than we expect. Well, I mean, both of those things always happen with every every company. <laughs> um, but but anyway, so so for us, um, one of the the attractions of a strategic investor slash owner was that it would give us the time frame, the longer perspective to build this business with the patience that we felt that it probably requires rather than a a VC investment where build frantically for 12 months and then you're on the fundraising trail yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Hey, and, and what's the view? What was the view at that time from uh, from the investors of uh, of of, of Holvi at that time? So you had Speed Invest on board, also some business angels, as yeah. mentioned. You were yourself a founding team running the business. Yeah. Sometimes that means also my own experience has a different view, right? Because yeah. everybody has their own motivation. What what was the view at that time of the investors? Yeah, I mean, the, for for that we also need to kind of um, a little bit rewind back to to what the the fintech investment landscape was in like 2014, 2015. Like if you look at it from today's lens and especially like second quarter, third quarter this year, the, the fintech financings that we've seen, it's it's easy to forget how completely different it was back then. The sums were so much smaller, almost everything was still unproven. So like whether you could even build a challenger bank um, was was just completely unproven. So so from the point of of the existing and potential new investors as as well, it was maybe slightly early days to make a significant Series A investment um, and build from from that. So so kind of for all parties concerned, a relatively good strategic exit mm-hmm. was an attractive uh, proposition. At what point came the idea that it might be a possibility to buy back the company? Well, I mean, we spent um, very, very good years under BBVA. We grew the company a lot. I mean, at the time of the the sale of the business in 2016, we were like 15 people. And we grew that team to, to about 10x um, over the, the following five years we built the whole presence in in the German market. Basically, we we really build the international footprint under BBVA, and and kind of the the rationale that we had um, when going into into the um, kind of joining uh, BBVA that that hey this this requires resourcing, this requires time to to build. Um, I think we were right right about that, and and it was very very good to have a kind of large parent company that could support that internationalization and patient growth of the company. Hey, and how, how was it for you personally? Because you mentioned already that you never worked for a company, right? 
apart from your own companies. And now you had to, let's say, work for a Spanish giant, fintech giant, uh, banking giant. How was it for you personally to to make that uh, the switch? No, I mean it was it was okay. Um, and and as a, as a company, I mean we we stayed very autonomous throughout the the years. Of course, we had the the parent company folks um, on on our board, very much involved on a strategic level, setting the overall goals. But operationally, we continued very much as before and had the. The room and the leeway to put our our effort into into the business and and building the business and and the culture of the company mm-hmm. stayed very much as as it was was before. So the very strong culture of of Holovi as mm-hmm. as as Holovi. So hey, and and, and so that change stayed the same, right? But I also can imagine indeed that the banking giant has his own processes, rules, uh, uh, the way they work, oh, governance, etc. What what did change from that moment on? No, I mean, of course, um, from a compliance and governance point of view, things did change mm-hmm. um, over the years. But in, in, in very many ways, that was a good thing for us. Yes, we were like 15 people, a, a regulated player already at the time of the acquisition. But of course, a company of that size from a governance compliance perspective, we were still kind of a little bit raw um, yeah. around yeah. the edges. Yeah. So in in terms of becoming a kind of real solid financial institution, it helped us a lot to to be yeah. part of a, a a larger institution. And and in a sense, of course, being regulated, so you have the the regulator to to answer to, but but we almost had kind of a second regulator uh, from the <laughs> from the um the corporate side. But but all in all, I mean um that was super, super good for for the company um in in building or, or really maturing the the company to to where we are are now and and of course now it has given us this this really great base to 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 build on on for the future yeah but it also meant that the company in size grew from 15 to 150 people right Correct, yeah so i think also for your role as a ceo and and as a founder it changed how, how, how was that for you on a personal level also to manage the growth of a company especially regarding staff yeah so personally um so i was the the founding ceo throughout the bbva years mm-hmm. so i was in different roles so not not as the the ceo but all all around uh for me personally it was actually quite interesting to be able to see all kinds of areas of the of the company and and experience the the growth of the company from a lot of different angles and of course like as they always say that whenever um the the headcount of company doubles like everything breaks you you got to structure everything again because the the previous communication patterns just just don't work anymore and and going from like 15 people to 250 people like we went through that process like two or three times um <laughs> yeah. where, where it just felt that yeah everything that used to work is not working anymore really interesting to see that kind of um growth story um from kind of the inside and from different roles so I want to go back to the reacquiring for a moment. At one point, someone has to send an email or a phone call or a Zoom link with the ID. Or, or, or a coffee chat. Or a coffee chat <laughs> <laughs> with the ID that it might be possible to reacquire it. Who brought up the first ID? How, how did that situation go? Yeah, no, I mean, so of course, 2020 was a big year of changes um, all around the world like COVID and all the changes that 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 brought about. And of course, at, at many companies kind of um, bringing a, a, a renewed focus on, okay, what's the core? What are the initiatives that um, one wants to, to, to focus? So, so that brought like some changes in, in kind of our operating environment. Um, then of course, at our parent company, some, some big changes happened. Um, in, in like after summer in in 2020 the us business of of bbva was fully sold and along of course with the us business um a couple of our uh, sister portfolio companies were sold as well so simple that i mentioned earlier um was sold at, at that that same point so then in a way kind of as part of this new digital businesses unit all of it was kind of the only big company as as part of that portfolio and then then with with BBVA we started to look at like okay 
has been a really, really good place for Holovi for the past five years. But now with all of these changes, this is still the right place for us. Yeah. A lot of discussions around that, uh, discussing different different options. Um, but then myself and um, and the, the core management team, we, we put on the table that one option could be that we, we do a, a management buyout. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and then we, in December, January, um, negotiated the parameters of, of, of that agreement and, um, and reached a mutually agreeable conclusion. And, and since the, the start of February of, of this year, we've now been a, a fully independent um, team owned, owned company. So. And what were the other options you were considering at that time? Because one of the options was indeed to buy back Holvi. What were the other options you were considering or BBVA was considering? Well, I mean, most of that, of course, is um, under quite extensive NDA, so mm-hmm. okay. um, can't really go into into all the options. But, but I mean, of course, it's always good to consider options with different a ones. Yeah. kind of well, all the options. Yeah, and tell us what it was like because I can only imagine. At one point, you discussed the possibility of reacquiring the company with your team. It must be very exciting to once again be the be the sole founder yeah, or the, the, feels, be the founder I, and the yeah. and it, it, I had a company myself which I sold and also almost bought back and then uh, two, 2009 the banking crisis happened and then I re- re- literally at the notary I pulled off so to say so I personally experienced you get a lot of strange feelings also on that right yeah I mean of course it was was not something to take lightly and and of course we'd had had very good support from the the parent company for for the past five years and a lot of resources and now of course starting on on our own would would mean that um, none of that that resourcing would be available um, so we would truly be on our own again and so that's that's definitely not a, a step to take lightly. And of course, we did um, our due diligence with the core team in making sure that if we do this MBO, that the entity that we kind of have on our hands, that 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 it is something that is sustainable, that we can make into to a company um, for the, the the long run, and um, mm-hmm. and based on that, that and of course, I mean, since we've been been um, part of the operational team. The due diligence was quite straightforward because we knew the company. Yeah, um, yeah. from the inside. So, exactly. And we knew that what changes we'd need to do mm-hmm. to, to put the company on mm-hmm. on a, a, a solid footing. And, and we knew that that having the the flexibility of, of being fully team-owned, we could do the kinds of decisions. Also, like it's for for the whole team, it's been a really really hard year yeah, um, to yeah. to to put the company on 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 solid footing, both in terms of reducing costs, yeah. Um, yeah, very yeah. very significantly, yeah. um, and then also doing the kinds of things that we needed to do to to increase revenues also very significantly. So, so I, I, I read somewhere that almost half the staff had to be laid off and uh, you changed the business model to a full paid model, uh, which caused like a, a 17% churn, which is quite all right, actually, <laughs> if, you, if you want to get people on board for paying for your product. Well, what was that like, those two major changes? No, yeah. So in, in terms of the kind of reducing cost to put the company on a, on a solid footing, so we had to to reduce the team quite significantly. So we went from from almost 150 people to to around a little under 70 people now. So um, about half the, the size of the team. And that that was of course really hard for for all, all the team members that that had to leave, um, as well as of course for all the, the team members that that stayed, because of course a lot of colleagues leaving yep. and, and of course the the workload it, it only increased. Um, and so so we've done kind of even more than we did in the past, but with uh, half the team that we have now. So it's it, it certainly hasn't been an easy year for anyone. And and it's been amazing kind of like how well the team has pulled together and, and how much everyone's um, really achieved. But of course, the the spirit of, of being, or what we call indie holovy, uh, being independent again. So that has really helped to kind of everyone um, kind of really focused on on the task that, okay, let's get this company on, on a solid footing. How, how did you um, like explain it to everyone? Because you're, you're buying back the company uh, and you had to explain there was going to be significant cuts in, in costs. 
how did you convey that to all the staff so that they uh, that they know what's going on and that they understood why it was necessary? Well, I mean, um, we've always been very open with our team on on the financials of the company. So everyone knew that to put this on a solid footing, we would need to to um, get the cost base in better better shape. So everyone understood that. But then we also invested a, a lot of time in in outplacement activities um, mm. to make sure that mm. that that everyone who who couldn't continue with the team found a good new new employment opportunity. And what what was actually on on a personal level great for me to see is that for a lot of people who left Holvi, it was great to see that the the new companies, new positions that they went to, mm-hmm. it was a kind of a, a very clear kind of step up on on their career that this experience that they'd had at, at Holvi where you'd really seen kind of payments and banking from the inside on a way wider scope than you would see if you're at a big traditional bank. You, you just get to see mm-hmm. like a small sliver of kind of the business of, of a bank, whereas at Holvi, people had seen and actually had a very wide scope of responsibility. So that helped for, for a lot of folks um, a really kind of um, make a step up in their, their career. Good to hear. Very impressive how you did that indeed. Going from a founder, starting a company, buying it back, letting indeed also people go. It's also that really tough decisions. Hey, what are your plans and ambitions for the future? Because I think I read somewhere, I think in a Finnish publication probably, or TechCrunch. It was on Sifted.eu. It was on Sifted.eu. Thank you for that, Remy. Uh, that, that there might be some plans even for an IPO in the future. What's your vision for the future for Holvi? Well, I mean, the company has, has now gone through two five-year periods. So first we were like five years as a fintech pioneer, then five years um, under BBVA. But now we're on our kind of third five-year plan or maybe a, a more in Star Trek terms, five-year mission mm-hmm. to to explore the strange worlds of, of fintech. But yes, um, I mean, now as an, as an independent entity, the, the next five years, we definitely see ourselves as at the end of that that process being a a leading um, neobank in core European markets for for business customers and and most likely not not only a neobank but a bank bank um, mm-hmm. um, at the end of that period and and of course a a natural path at that point would be to to also be a a publicly listed company but but that's that's some years in the future. Um, maybe as if that it was um, <laughs> a little, little bit um, too prominently, too in, prominently the, in, the, yeah. in the headline yeah, than, yeah. than what our, our real ambition is. Yeah, and probably you're going to raise funding also, right, to get to this phase, these next five years, as you mentioned. Uh, absolutely. So now our focus has been to to put the company on, on solid footing and put it in a place where where it makes sense to, to then um, raise growth funding mm. um, for really for the growth instead of raising funding to quote unquote keep the company floating yeah. um, so okay. the valuation so you can respond in any way you'd like as hallway was first acquired by bbva in 2016 and then bought back again this year by toivenem himself we have to dig into two exit valuations this time the purchase price that BBVA had to pay for Holvi in 2016 was not disclosed, but TechCrunch did some research to the acquisition already. With a told M&A agenda from BBVA, TechCrunch points out the acquisition of Simply, a US-based digital banking app that happened two years earlier. The amount was disclosed at 117 million US dollars, and Simply could serve as a comparable pair to Holvi. TechCrunch therefore guesses that Holvi was acquired for around or maybe less than 100 million US dollars. Although we have limited data to dig deeper into this guess, the transaction was listed in a fintech startup M&A report where the deal amount of 100 million US dollars, the equivalent of 90 million euros, is confirmed. So, now fast forward five years to February this year, 2021. The tech investment firm Keru Fintech Investments, founded by Holvi's co-founder Thomas Toivinen, acquired back all shares of Holvi from the Spanish banking group. 
No information about the exact valuation was disclosed, so let's do some guesstimations. First, we use some public data to estimate the revenue. We know that in late 2020, Holvi had approximately 200,000 customers, where we assume that 150,000 were paying. By taking an average of their monthly subscription price at 6 and 12 euros to 9 euros per month, we get a turnover of around 16 million euros. Secondly, we looked at a comparable transaction to derive a revenue multiple ballpark. The French fintech company Shine, focusing on SME banking solutions, got acquired by Societe Générale in June 2020. At that time, Shine had approximately 70,000 customers with an average subscription price of 16.6, estimating their annual revenue at 15.5 million. Shine got acquired for 100 million euros, which indicates a 6.9 revenue multiple. This seems about right when we benchmark this to public fintech revenue multiples, which were around eight times by the start of Q3 2020 and 6.5 mid-2021. By then using a slightly lower private multiple at six times the revenue, we now estimate a valuation of Holvi at 100 million euros. But not so fast. Since the initial acquisition, the neobank market had turned way more competitive with players like Quanto, Penta, Revolut and N26 popping up, and Holvi had just pulled out of the UK market. In addition, BBVA showed signs that they wanted to sell their neobank exposure by quitting Simply's operations in January 2021. Lastly, knowing that the failure rate for M&A sits between 70 and 90%, according to Harvard Business Review, it might not be a wrong assumption that everything did not go as planned after BBVA bought Holvi. So, when the initial founder came knocking at the door, we expect that Holvi was sold at a discount of, let's say, 70%. Applying this to the estimated valuation, we guess that Thomas bought Holvi back at around 30 million euros. To conclude, we think the founder sold Holvi for 90 million euros in 2016, and bought it back again for around 30 million in 2021. So, Thomas, depending on how good you are at negotiating, is the price we have estimated too high or too low? I think that your estimations in both cases are somewhat too high. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to The Big Exit Show. We hope you enjoyed today's program. And if you did, please subscribe to our show on Spotify or your favorite podcast platform. And if you have any feedback, please send us an email to podcast at peak.capital. My name is Remy Gieling. And I'm Johan van Mil. Thanks again for listening. And we hope you join us at the next episode.